Hey guys, welcome to Cars and Health Bars. On today's episode, I have my long-awaited guest, Brian Tooley of Brian Tooley Racing in Bardstown, Kentucky. With that being said, guys, let's get right into it. All right, of course, today we have with us Brian Tooley of BTR. Uh, Brian, how are you doing today? Great. How are you guys? Fantastic. Awesome. Excited to hop at your head. Yeah, you've yeah, been a, yeah, me too. You've been a desired guest, uh, at least for me. You know, I whenever we went to your cars and coffee, I was just uh, blown away by the uh, machining. And you know, of course, I knew about you prior uh, because of your blocks, your heads, your cams, of course. Uh, but I was just blown away by what you have built uh, over there in Bardstown. And I, I just kind of want the listener to get filled in on kind of your story on how how you started out and uh, all that interesting stuff. Yeah, well, I think it's uh, an interesting story. Of course, of course, it's, I think everybody's got a story thinks it's interesting. But you know, the the big thing with BTR right now is the fact that it's been less than ten years since I moved out of my basement. Wow! Right? That is crazy. Forty five thousand square feet, over sixty employees, and um, but there was an interview done by on, on the guy that invented Segway one time. Yeah. And he said it only took me 20 years to become an overnight success. Huh. Wow. And, and I have the exact same story because I started my first business in 1993. Wow. Was that a total engine airflow or? Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, you know, so it's a very similar story, right? I started that in 1993. Uh, by 2001, I bought a five axis CNC. It was pretty successful. Um, I was one of the first shops in the country with a true five-axis simultaneous CNC. Um, I was doing work for Texas Speed, Proline Racing, Bischoff Engine Service. I mean, you name it. Uh, I was porting heads for everyone. Our CNC ran 24/7. Wow. Yeah, you it gotta have those really... machines pay for themselves. They are uh, they're very expensive. Yeah, yeah, and it uh, you know it it definitely it definitely paid for itself. And um, so, so that was 2001 when I bought that machine, and then by 2003, Summit Racing uh, Trickflow kind of came knocking. Um, now, some background there. I'll try to tile this together and make it uh, cohesive. <laughs> so, when I started Total Zero Flow in 1993, around 1996, I decided to do one thing and do it better than anyone. And, and quite honestly, I was at church one Sunday, and the pastor. You know, it's part of the Bible that basically says that, right? Do do one thing and do it better than anyone. And I decided that I was going to port twisted wedge Ford heads better than anyone in the country. And I spent about a week porting and flowing and, and praying uh, on a <laughs> on, on a twisted wedge Ford head that I was hacking on. And I was hacking on it because I didn't have anything else in my in my little shop to actually port at that point. <laughs> and um, and just a month or two later, I was at PRI. Right, so it's 1996 PRI, uh -huh. and I and I go to the TrickFlow booth, and I see Rick Smith for the first time. Rick Smith is the founder of TrickFlow. Yeah. Right. Started in the 80s, sold it to Summit '93. He was a rock star in the 90s, and um, you know, in the solar head industry. And so, met him in '96. I'm a, I'm a, at the TrickFlow booth, and he's surrounded by a crowd of people, and um, and he's talking about the new twisted wedge R Ford head, and he said, Yeah, we have it flowing 270 at 400 lift. And I spoke up. I said I had the twisted wedge street head flowing that. And at first, he he kind of uh, 
crinkled his face like he wanted to say BS. <laughs> then you, you you could tell the epiphany hit his brain, and he's like, "You couldn't send me that head, could you?" And I said, "Sure." And so I sent that head to Trick Flow, and it was the highest flowing twisted wedge Ford head they'd ever seen. And so they tried to hire me in '96, and they tried to hire me again around 2000. And by 2003. Trick flow was kind of getting crushed because AFR had brought their CNC porting of their heads in house. Edelbrock was using a company whose name takes me now. Canfield was using, you know, somebody. So pretty much, you know, Dart was maybe in house. So everyone out there was offering their own head CNC ported except for Trick Flow. Yeah, so and kind of uh, in two thousand. Yeah, absolutely. And in 2003, we had a stellar year. You know, I was, you know, typical small business owner. You know, I went and bought me a brand new, um, you know, diesel dually pickup truck and a brand new enclosed trailer and a Corvette and went nines. And, uh, you know, we <laughs> we had a good year. And, um, you know, when the trick flow manager saw me, ironically, PRI, you know, uh-huh. um, 2003 and he said how's business and i told him i said man we're, we're porting ls heads by the pallets <laughs> you know run this machine 24 7 you know we were just killing it and uh you know he kind of hung his head i was like how are you guys doing he said well we're, we're not doing that good right and uh he said we really need your expertise and i said well there's one way to get it it'd be by the business and uh so he uh had me shoot him a price and i shot him a price and they did some due diligence and and bought it and then so in uh, november 2004 um you know we moved total flow to Talmadge, ohio where trick flow summit is and um you know so that was the start of you know me working for those guys and and my little team you know developing all of their cnc ported heads yeah so i personally did all the digitizing uh, programming i had four cncs that i had to uh you know, that I had under my purview to keep up with the CNC porting production. Wow. And and it was very educational. I could say right? so. A lot of you self-learning, know, I, especially, I mean, were you running it all by yourself back then? I was running the four CNCs that did, that ported all of the heads. Yeah, I, I did 100% of the digitizing CNC program on those four CNCs. Wow. That's incredible. And, and I, I, I tell everyone... You know, metaphorically speaking, I went to Summit with probably not even a complete bachelor's degree and left with a master's. <laughs> That's incredible. Right. Yeah. Make no mistake about it. What I learned in the six years I worked for Summit Racing is a very big part of what has made BTR what it is today. Wow, I didn't know that. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, just, just the Valspring thing, right? We developed that platinum dual valve spring at trick flow in 2005 and ironically when i was leaving in 2010 um, they were looking at changing spring vendors we had sold that platinum spring for five years without a single failure wow and this the spring vendor they were looking at changing to had a history failures with comp they actually made the 918 beehive springs for comp and i told them i said you would be you guys be crazy to switch spring vendors and i left and they switched and um you know and, and that's what uh you know and then you know i was you know under a two-year non-compete with summit and so i was doing day trading i got my real estate license i was building engines i was porting heads i was doing anything to make money um 
So if you guys ever need two dollars turned into one, I'm your I'm your huckleberry when it comes to day trading. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the good Lord uh, steered me in the direction not to go. I think with that, but um, but um, I- anyway. So you um, went from I'm getting uh, a bit. You went from your four four mills to what 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 do you have now uh, at at your Bardstown facilities? How many machines uh, do you know off the top of your head that you have in operation now? Uh, CNCs, I think we have. If you want to say everything that's a CNC, I think we have maybe eight. Um, because we have the Mazak, which is an eighteen pallet pull CNC, right? <laughs> yeah. Five axis CNC. Yeah. We have the Hawes five-axis CNC. We have a Takumi three-axis CNC that we cut patterns on. We have a Herco four-axis CNC that we machine the block zone. We have two star Swiss turn machines that we machine retainers on. We have a Rottler CNC home, and then we have a new and CNC seeking guide machine. Wow. Uh, I was so just blown away by the Mazak alone. That's a very impressive piece of equipment, isn't it? Yes. Well, you know, yeah. I, I I actually left out the most expensive CNC, the CNC cam grinder. Oh, yeah. That I I've never seen one in person, and whenever uh, you showed us the that, I was like, just just seeing it all in person is so much different than seeing it in video. It's just incredible uh, how. I mean, even what goes into the programming of send each belt going in at a particular time, and it's just uh, I can't I can't imagine. I'm sure you have an amazing team there of uh, programmers. Yeah, the, the grinding wheel. Yeah. yeah. Yep. It's got a, a CBD uh, grinding wheel. Um, CBN, sorry. CBN grinding wheel. And, um, yeah, that uh, that is an incredible machine. And they've developed software in just the last few years that actually speeds up the grinding process with less chance of burning the cam blow. Because if you're not careful when you grind a cam you can actually burn the surface and a burn actually anneals the the steel and makes it soft. Oh wow. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And when you see a cam lobe that, you know, some people say it's spalling, you know, some people say it's flaking, you know, you hear it called all kinds of things. Well that's actually where you've annealed the, the surface of the lobe and that material is soft and it can it can actually start flaking off. Hmm. Right? And um yeah. and so this new software that, you know, runs the feed and speed of that CNC because not only does the grinding wheel speed vary, but the speed of the, that the camshaft is turning varies as it's grinding. Right. And, um, yeah, so the two of those working together, um, you know, has increased the, you know, the speed at which that thing can grind a cam. What and what's then, the uh what's the grind time on one of those cams? Does it just vary depending on what kind of grind you're going we, for? We we don't really talk about that much in public. <laughs> oh, okay, I got you. I understand and, that. And, 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 and I'll give you some idea. Most people out there grinding cams and a CNC cam grinder, it, they they spend about thirty minutes grinding a cam. Uh huh. And and we spend significantly less time than that. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, yeah. cams have got to be, I mean, just, just from the outside looking in and here, you know, originally hearing about BTR is like, that's all people talk about is your camshafts. Cause you know, that's what everybody's putting in your truck. Norris cam is so insanely popular. And, uh, even your red hot cam, I'm starting to hear more and more about yeah. of locals running it. Yeah. It's a very good cam for a small cam. Yeah, definitely. You know? Yeah. Uh, I think my favorite machine that you all have is probably that Spintron. 
yeah, yeah, that's a uh, yeah. We we actually bought the Spintron company. Really? Okay. Yeah, race winning brands. That was part of Diamond Trend, that whole deal that Bob Fox owned, and they um, they didn't have a lot of use for Spintron, and they actually sold it to us. So we're technically the owners. We don't we're not currently providing any support for it. But um, but even that in itself is almost amazing because they tell everyone to call us. And it's just like there was a couple months ago, the guy that runs the four spintrons at Roush Racing contacted me. And he's like, hey, I need this. I was like, well, quite honestly, not in position to help you today. But then that led into an hour and a half phone conversation, you know, about, <laughs> you know, this guy that's been at Roush for 20, 25 years, which was an amazing conversation in itself. Yeah. Um, but that, uh, that spintron... Everyone out there that's developing camshafts without a Spintron and without an engine dyno, and they are at a huge, huge disadvantage. Yeah, I would say so. That thing really looks like it helps out a lot. It, it does because it really equates to durability, right? Stability yeah. on the Spintron equates to long-term durability of the valve train. And, you know, we used to run durability testing at TrickFlow and even at Holly when I was there in the 90s. And when you start doing 24 and 48 hour, you know, wide open throttle, continuous durability test, you know, that is brutal durability testing. And that's really nothing compared to, you know, the real life cycle of an engine. Yeah. You know, and so, um, so the, the ability to, um, you know, spin up all these different parts and and look and learn and you know all these things that you assume are true you find out are false um push rod diameter three piece push rods this is one of the best things that i've seen because we uh we thought we were going to be cool and come out with our own three piece push rods like a men or something right yeah it was four grams heavier than a swedged in you know push rod like we sell today yeah and and that four grams hurt the trace on the spintron wow yeah i bet it was noticeable for sure yeah i mean it, it was not as good and then you know like everybody runs bigger and bigger push rods right because everybody says that weight doesn't matter on the on the push rod side of the valve train well by the time like at 11 30 seconds is a good upgrade from a 516 push rod and an ls but by the time you get to three eighths it's now too heavy so a three eighths is not as good as 11 30 seconds how much uh, difference do you see between like uh, 11, 30 seconds and three eighths? The actual closing bounce, I, I don't recall. I mean, it, you know, it's measurable. You know, it's a couple of thousands yeah. difference in closing bounce. Is, of course, that's the main thing we focus on, right? It's closing yeah. bounce. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, there's just so many things that you hear about valve train that when you actually have a Spintron, you do the testing, you find out are all false. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just, you know, developing cam lobes and having different thoughts, you know, we, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, I tell everybody in, in 2018, in spring of 2018, when we bought that same lobe development software that comp cams uses, I told myself it's going to be 15 to 20 years before we're probably as good as them. 
And by January 2020, we were as good or slightly better on the Spintron and Engine Dyno. And by mid-2021, we were significantly better on both. <laughs> wow. And from from my perspective, I didn't think we would ever achieve that. Ever. I mean, I, w- I was hoping to be as good in 15 or 20 years. Yeah, anymore, you know, I hear of the older guys running comp cams, but anymore, anytime I hear of somebody doing a camshaft, it's either you guys or Texas Speed. That seems to be the two go-to camshafts right now for LSs. Yeah, and and what Texas Speed has done very well is marketing, and, you know, they were also out there first, right? I mean, Yeah, they were I, definitely early. Yeah, I mean, they were, you know, 10 years ahead of me. I mean, right, I was porting heads for them, and, I don't know, 2002, 2003, and then I didn't start this business until 2012. So, um, you know, so they obviously had uh, CNC cam grinding in-house before we did and, um, you know, all all sorts of things. But where they kind of went wrong, not to throw my competition under the bus right here <laughs> on the podcast, but, you know, they do not develop lobes in-house and they do not have a Spintron. Wow. Yeah, I really feel like that is hurting them, not having a Spintron. Absolutely, because, you know, we do the testing and we know how good or bad their stuff is, and, and it's rather shocking. Yeah, I originally went with a Texas Speed cam on my car, and, you know, after learning, seeing y'all's Spintron video, I immediately switched over to, I'm going to run y'all's cam. It's, yeah, it's the best, you know, um, and, and there's so many aspects of making a, a great cam or the best cam. Because it really starts at the cam core, yeah, yeah, right, and and goes all the way up from there. And and I would like to speak about cam cores because a lot of people don't understand that all of us out here grinding camshafts, we all start with this thing called a UGL, what they call an unground lobe cam. Yeah, and and that UGL, most everyone uses a generic UGL, and so the cam core supplier in Michigan, because uh, there's three of them up there. They will try to heat treat those cam cores about four millimeters deep and then leave upwards of two millimeter of material to grind off. Right? Yeah. Well they'll they'll try to grind literally a hundred thousand different combinations of intake duration, exhaust duration, lobe separation, the center lines with just 10, 15, 20 UGLs. Okay. Well, that causes two it causes several problems. Number one, when you try to heat treat that deep, it's almost like over over baking your brownies or your cookies, right? It can get <laughs> yeah. brittle. Yeah. And and we've had the entire nose of a lobe fall off of two camshafts, for example. Dang. <laughs> it's the, the entire nose fall off. Right? Wow. And yeah, we've seen like on a Gen Five cam, the number two bearing journal where you had the oil annulus. Uh-huh. We we saw the entire front of those break off like a wedding ring. Jeez. That is crazy. Yeah, and all of that is from trying to put too much heat treat in that cam core. Well, the way we do it is we do what's called a specialty UGL, which is where we have the special UGL made for every different cam that we grind. Okay. Yeah. Now the heat treat is only three millimeter. But there's only a half a millimeter of stock left on the cam to grind yeah. off, right? So you don't have the stresses and the brittleness of a generic UGL. But then you also 
grind the cam much faster because it has less material to grind off. Right. And you yeah. have way less, way less chances of grinding through the heat treat, which is something that we see over and over, you know, with one camshaft supplier out there. They don't grind through heat treat all the time, which is shocking to me. Yeah, you know, that just, is. It's just unbelievable. You know, they spend two to three times as much time grinding it as they could if they just bought bought specialty UGLs, you know, yeah. and, and, and grind through the heat treat all at the same time. Yeah. Um, so just the way we do our camcores is unique. And of course, yeah, we have, you know, 60, you know, plus different part numbers of UGLs or specialty UGLs. Uh, and and the, the problem with a specialty UGL is you have to order a minimum of 100 at a time. Right. Wow. Yeah. So a lot of people don't want to carry that much inventory. But from my perspective, if you can grind the cam in half the time or a third of the time, you know, you could pay for the inventory. Right. Yeah, I agree. And, and then the customer ends up with a better part. Both and, parties. And, yeah. So it's just like, so from my perspective, to have the best cam course with the best lobe designs, the best cam grinding, because the Landis LT1E, the CNC, there's nothing better in the country for grinding a camshaft. It is the best CNC you can buy, right? The best cams from a cam climate event standpoint, that being the open-close events, and then also the best cam finishing, because, you know, we haven't really even touched on cam finishing, right? We do isotropic or room finishing on our camshafts, right? Yeah. There's only two of us in the entire country that do that. Yeah. And um, everyone else sands their cams. And sanding a cam isn't nearly as good as isotropic or, or rim finishing. Um, you know, so when you can have the best cam core, the best load design, the best cam grinding, the best finishing, the best, you know, cam timing events all at the same time, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable from my perspective. I, if you'd have told me five and a half years ago that we would have the best of all of those, <laughs> I would say, how? How's that possible? <laughs> That's like going from zero to a hundred in, in, in a second. How is that even possible? Yeah. It's like yeah. you said, you know, Texas speed did, you know, they, they definitely have the longevity, uh, especially over you guys, but the amount of catch up that you guys have done is incredible. And that kind of leads me into my next point. Uh, you know, I kind of wanted to talk about, uh, PRI a little bit for the first day we, we struggled finding you a little bit. You know, I was trying to find a uh, search through the map and it, you know, it's such a large map. And I was like, Oh, there's, there's Brian. I was like, Oh, he's kind of tucked in the corner there a little bit, but Oh my gosh, the crowd we yeah. found whenever we finally got back there to you all, it was your booth was buzzing the whole entire time. And, uh, yeah, it was that, pretty busy. So were you, you waited, uh, until PRI to unveil that, uh, that new head, didn't you? You know, um, we actually took the raw casting to PRI last year. Oh, wow. Okay. But we, we only showed it to a few people, a few industry insider people. Uh-huh. Um, yes. so yeah, that was, um, yeah, that was brand new for the show. We really didn't talk about it. We really don't like, like taking products to the show unless they're ready to sell. Yeah. You know, so we really didn't talk about it that much, even during the show. I don't, I don't feel like a, or maybe my marketing guy did. Um, but, um, you know, from my perspective, I didn't want to hype it up too much uh -huh. because it wasn't on the shelf. Yeah. That's the first thing when we started doing. We were, what's that? 
when can we expect to see that on show? Um, I'm hoping April. Um, we unfortunately Thursday or Friday of the show we we received the uh, quote back from the foundry that we wanted to cast them at, and uh, yeah. the quote was not favorable. <laughs> so <laughs> is it a sand cast or a perma cast? I didn't notice. So um, so we so that the castings we had at the show and the castings we've had on the dyno, those were all made from 3D printed sand cores. Okay. Um, for production, we wanted to use permanent mold tooling. Okay, yeah. Yeah, which is the way to make a cylinder head because, you know, you just you need to yeah. a better, denser casting. Um, that's just, you know, it's more, excuse me, more expensive tooling, but, you know, much better in product. And then we're also doing some unique things with the water jacket that we're not talking about. I but, noticed, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, one thing you notice when you look at it is all the water holes are round. Uh-huh. Right. And we did that because it would make strength it easy. What's that? Is it a, I was going to say, is that for strength or? Was It's honestly for dry decking. And, and you could use it for strength if someone wanted. Right? Yeah. Because if someone wanted to, because when you look at like the lower water holes on a head gasket, I mean, those holes are like the eighth inch of diameter. Yeah. Right. So you could literally plug those um, holes, you know, with aluminum or steel plug or whatever material you wanted to, and then drill the corresponding size hole, you know, to make that that much more rigid. But the thing, the reason we really did it for is ease of dry decking. Because if you have a drill and a tap, you can literally dry deck those, those heads in your garage. Wow, that's yeah. really, that's nice. Right? Yeah, because typically you have to weld the castings up, right? You have to weld all those water ports up to dry deck. Yeah. Them. I was so, going to ask you a little more about those heads. I don't know if you're wanting to dive all sure. into a lot of info now or not. Um, I can try. But I noticed the canted valve design too, and... Uh, the smaller valve too, the LT1 valve is a little smaller than the LS3. Yep. I was just yeah. curious of what your, you know, why y'all chose that design. I'm sure you saw benefits sure. from it. I noticed the, the intake valve looked a lot straighter than an LS3 valve, or sorry, runner. It is. It's a very, very straight runner, which obviously helps power production. But yeah, let's talk about smaller valves. So there's several advantages to that LT1 valve. Um, compared to what a lot of aftermarket heads are produced with. So when you get into these larger head diameter valves, you know, 2 and 65 and larger on these LS3 yeah. and LS7 heads, most of them are solid stem valves, and they're in the 110 to 120 gram range. Yeah. That's a very heavy valve. And on our Spintron, you know, it, it's like, you, you know, the titanium OE valves and, you know, even LS3 hollow stem that are like yeah. 89 grams titanium stuff that's all the way down in the 70s. All the six valves that's down in the 70s. And then solid stem LS1s that are about 100 grams. You spin on all of that stuff in that 77 to 100 gram range. All that stuff is pretty good. And then whenever you get to, let's say, an L99 intake valve that's 100, 110 grams, yeah. that valve that valve is pretty unhappy. And then by the time you get to all these aftermarket stainless LS7 valves, uh, a lot of the aftermarket LS3 valves, an LSA intake valve is 120 grams. 
Eight. By the time you by the time you get to 120 gram intake valve weight, that valve train is extremely pissed off. I bet it is like flipping a switch almost when you go from 100 grams to 110, 120. And so we knew we wanted a hollow stem valve. And you know when you look at just the the power production we've made, you know our LS3 with stock heads and stock intake makes you know. 570 horsepower you know our our lt1 engine we ultimately made 740 god both both of them 6.2 liter engines both of them running pump v85 both of them hydraulic roller with stock rockers right of course obviously a lot of that power production with the gen 5 comes from the direct injection um a lot of that you know 60 horsepower that's just from the direct injection but a lot of that comes from the cylinder head, right? And yeah. so when you look at intake, when you look at airflow of a hydraulic roller cylinder head, if you want to make power, you focus on coefficient of discharge. Yeah. Coefficient of discharge formula is intake valve diameter times pi, which gives you circumference, times lift, which gives you curtain area. And yeah. so at each lift point, you take the airflow divided by the valve curtain area. And that unit of measure, not only is that an efficiency number, but that's also CFM per square inch. So yeah. it's actually a velocity number as well. Okay, right? CFM per yeah. square inch. Yeah. Now, if you want to make a really powerful hydraulic roller street strip head, you focus on 100 through 500 lift. Yeah. You don't, you don't even pay attention to six or seven. Yeah, because you're barely touching them. You barely touch them, exactly. But what you want at those points is not what everybody thinks. Because at 100 lift, you want that thing to flow the least amount of air possible. Because you want to build up a air in the runner, is what I'm going to guess. No, because whenever the intake valve opens and the cylinder is still blowing down, it's still blowing exhaust out the exhaust port. Yeah. The, the, the less that intake flows at low lift, the less intake reversion you get at idle, and the more power you make at peak horsepower. Because anything you do to pump exhaust gas back into that intake port is lost power, bad yeah. drivability, bad, bad idle. Yeah. Every, nothing good comes from pushing Hot <laughs> air anything back. back at, yeah, anything, right? I mean, you want that intake valve to act like a check valve. Yeah. against reversion at all times, right? Whether it's during overlap or whether it's the end of the intake cycle, right? And so, but the next thing you want is you want the head to flow as much air as possible at three, four, and 500. Well, because 400 is in the middle of 300 and 500 lift, we really focus on 400 lift, okay? And to quantify uh, this, I'll, I'll tell you a story from 2005. We're at TrickFlow. We're developing, uh, we just finished the 215 Cathedral Port heads. We're now developing the 225 heads, Cathedral Port heads, for the LS2 engine, right? It's 2005, yeah. right? LS2 just came out in 2005 Corvette. Uh-huh. Uh, brand new car, brand new engine. Um, you know, so we are developing this 225 LS2 head on a four inch bore, and we tested a 205 valve and a 208 valve. Right, the mm-hmm. 205 valve at 400 lift 
flow 10 CFM more than the 208 valve. So we chose the 2050 valve. And we had our, we've also discovered that with these long runner LS6, LS2 fast type intakes, that a smaller exhaust valve would actually make more peak horsepower because it wouldn't over scavenge during overlap. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's something I would like to reiterate. We use the smaller exhaust valve so it wouldn't over scavenge during overlap because when you over scavenge the intake runner during overlap, you're blowing air that you really want to trap and burn out yeah. the exhaust. Okay. So we ended up with a 205-157 valve combination on this 225 trick flow head. Well, rather than the guys, the dyno guys at trick flow testing that head on an LS2, they instead built a 402, right? They took a four-inch board mm-hmm. block, put a four-inch stroke crank in it, and tested it against an AFR 225 head that had 208-1600 valves. And I kind of cried foul, right? Because I was like, wait a minute. This thing was developed for an LS2 size engine, right. not a 402. Yeah. And they said, we don't care. You know, it needs to go head-to-head against the AFR-225, and we're going to see what it does on a 402. Huh. So they did the test, and the trick flow head made 20 horsepower more than that AFR-225. Wow. With smaller valves on both sides. Yeah, I feel like there's a big misconception about bigger valves automatically equals more power in the head industry. Or... It's the biggest misconception in cylinder heads in the entire automotive performance aftermarket. Yeah, it's I see. Uh, I see heads like the the Frankenstein M311s, and originally I thought they were a pretty good looking head, but then you see they got that bigger intake valve, and that really steered me away from them. Yeah, I mean, you see, I mean, I see, I mean, not to call them out, but like a mass 305 head. Yeah. With that 2.25 intake valve. You see guys put those on, you know, C6, Z06s, you know, at least I saw it for years. And those heads dramatically underperformed. Yeah. You, you put them on a big engine, 440-some, 450-some cubic inch and turn it 9,000. Now they would. Now they would make power. Yeah. Because you could use the area. Right. Um, but on a hydraulic, you know, hydraulic roller street strip engine, you don't really need area. You need efficiency. You need high velocity. Yeah. That, that kind of makes me think of coyotes for some reason. Yeah. And, and four valve stuff is so different from two valve that it's hard to. Really compare, right. yeah. It's more apples to oranges. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I'll tell you another story about that 225 head. So now we released the head, right? And a guy in California had already made 480 the tires, which, believe it or not, was like one of the highest horsepower LS2 cars in the country in 2005. Oh, wow. And um, so we send him. I know, right? <laughs> so we send him. Of course, that you know, Fast 92 had just came out, so that was the best intake you could run on the engine. And so we send him a set of heads. And he called me, and he was mad. He said, man, I just datalogged this car. I'm moving less airflow through this engine than what I did with the Lingenfelter heads I just pulled off that had 205-1600 valves. And I said, okay, well, don't don't freak out just yet. Take it to the dyno. Call me back. Right? Yeah. But he was mad. So he calls me back. He said, well, I dynoed it. 
awkward pause. And I'm like, and <laughs> he said, he said, he said it, it made 507. I was like, wow, 27 real horsepower gain over the Ling filter heads. That's pretty good, right? And he's, you know, kind of still talking, talking slow. He's like, I, I don't believe it. I don't understand it. <laughs> and I said, well, understand that trapping and burning the air is what makes power, not what you blow out the exhaust port. Yeah. Blowing air out the exhaust port doesn't, doesn't make power. It loses power, right? right? Yeah. And, and that's what's so important about understanding over scavenging in an internal combustion engine. Right. You need proper scavenging. And obviously, as you put more and more intake manifold on an engine, it's less and less likely to be over scavenged. But, you know, properly controlling, you know, the like the, the cylinder head valve diameters, camshaft overlap, you know, works with the intake manifold. I mean, everyone knows that whole package yeah. works together, but some people don't realize to the degree that it works together. And how important, you know, that is. Right. I do want to hit on the uh, Trinity a little bit before we get off here with you. Uh, it, I, I wanted to sure. know kind of the because the Trinity seems to be again like the go-to. Uh, it, it's really becoming the go-to intake. Uh, whenever it comes to LS cars, uh, of course, you know, Texas Speed does have theirs, but uh, it, it does seem like I'm seeing more and more of the Trinity intakes. Can you kind of walk me through uh, how you came up with that design and how you feel, you know, it performs uh, to the competition? Sure, I'll be glad to. And, and honestly, this story goes back to 1993 when wow. I was at Holly. The first project I got handed was a project for Mercury Marine. They had just released their first um V6 fuel injected engine, or were about to release it, and they they had uneven air fuel ratio on all six cylinders, Dang. and they couldn't understand it. And they came to Holly, and they said, "We don't understand. We have a six cylinder engine, six port injectors. Every cylinder has different air fuel ratio." Uh-huh. And of course, me being an airflow guy, of course, understanding in you know, 1993, Holly's leasing my flow bench from me. <laughs> Jeez. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is a true story, right? They're, they're leasing my flow bench. And, um, you know, me being the airflow guy, I'm like, well, clearly, if that's the case, then every cylinder is getting a different amount of airflow. And so I built a fixture to flow this intake manifold and flowed all, all six intake ports. And sure enough, all six flowed a different amount of air, right? Yeah, and and so then we designed an intake manifold that had very equal distribution, and from that point forward, you know, I spent a lot of time paying attention to distribution. Um, around '96, I had a top Ford racer. You know, of course, I'm porting heads and doing intake manifolds and all this stuff through total engine airflow, and he sent me a Victor Junior Ford intake, and he's like, "Here, you know, weld weld the EFI bungs on this thing, and you know, machine the fuel rails to fit." And, all that stuff so i did all that for him uh-huh. and he sent it to me and he and he said look we got this thing on the dyno he said we actually have a trim box that we can trim fuel injectors up and down 10 percent each right he said so we had this thing trimmed to where the end cylinders are trimmed down 10 percent the center cylinders are trimmed up 10 percent 
and our you know we're doing plug readings and we can see that our center cylinders are still running leaner than our than our end cylinders on a single yeah. four barrel Ford intake. He said, "What should I do?" I said, well, "I think you should pull the intake off and put it in a trash can." <laughs> yeah. That's what I would do, right? Because he didn't ask me my opinion of putting you know injectors in the intake. Uh-huh. He just asked me to do it, and. You know, so I've always, you know, obviously I've done a lot with intakes over the last 30 years. Um, at TrickFlow, we actually spent some time trying to uh, better a fast intake for average power. Yeah, and we couldn't, we couldn't do it. But, but what we, what we did do is, uh, you know, I did some things where we, you know, were modifying the entry of the runner into the plumb and showed more air on the flow bench and put it on the engine dyno and it made less power everywhere. So that was kind of an epiphany for me, right? Because that gets into reflective wave. Okay. Yeah. So when you're designing an intake manifold, I mean, yeah, you want cylinder cylinder airflow distribution to be good, which the Trinity is excellent. It's, it's really, better than it should be. Um, but when you look at the plenum, you know that the, or what, maybe we should talk about airflow distribution in a typical, you know, throttle body mount, an intake with a throttle body that is flowing air across the entry of the runners. Uh-huh. Yeah. What typically happens is the opposite where everybody thinks. Everybody thinks, okay, those front runners are going to get the most air and the rear runners are going to get the least. Well, at wide open throttle, the velocity of air is so high that the air comes past the front runners and actually kind of starves the front runners for air. So they run richer Then the air stacks up in the back of the plenum and the rear cylinders get more air. Yeah. The real problem with that is the rear cylinders are also the hottest cylinders on the engine. Yeah. Right. So when you have the hottest cylinders, getting the most amount of air, you have real problems. And that's why yeah, people, that's... you know. They tend to take out number seven, number eight cylinders first. You know? Yeah. And um, so when you look at that Trinity plenum, not only is the top of it tapered, you know, yeah. down at the back, but if you look at the bottom side of it, the bottom side is actually tapered as it goes toward the rear of the plenum too. I noticed I that. never noticed that. I did notice the top. Yeah. Yeah. So it's actually tapered top and bottom to restrict air toward the rear. And honestly, it was a swag, right? Uh, scientific wild uh, guess in case you didn't know what swag was. Okay. And um, so, um, and it was magic. I mean, that the Trinity LS3, for example, has as good of airflow distribution on an LS3 as our LS3 Trinity intake does. I mean, the equalizer, sorry, the equalizer intake. Yeah. You know, the dual plenum type intake, you know, which is really quite remarkable to, to have that good of distribution well the other thing is people focus on that runner length you know they say oh well short runner you know it, it's going to murder the torque you know a, a runner that's longer is going to make you know just kill it on torque yeah and then they see the high ram comparisons where you know it's like on the gen 5 engine you know at a couple of points the torque curves touched and then the trinity surpassed it by 7,000. So they see a power curve like that and they're a bit dumbfounded because they can't believe that it makes that much torque in comparison. 
but it's because there's more than just runner length that produces torque. Yeah. The, the reflective wave in the runner is what really produces torque. Huh. And there's more than just runner length that affects a reflective wave. Right? Yeah. And, and that's, you know, I try really hard not to educate my competition. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, you know, so that's kind of all I'm going to say about that. Completely understand. But, um, yeah, it, like, yeah, like I was but, saying, it seems like more and more people are starting to kind of bleed, uh, you know, BTR parts, especially uh, the bolt-on parts, uh, into their build, especially the uh, LS crowd, the LS3 crowd, crowd uh, in particular. It's yeah, like, that's good stuff, you know. But, you know, if it's a naturally aspirated hydraulic roller that you're turning 7,000 RPM, that's that's not the intake I would run. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not. You know, I mean, I tell people all the time, you know, they have, a, you know, a 5.3 or an LS1, they're turning 7,000 RPM. I'm like, hey, buy a fast one or two. That's, yeah. that's, a, that's the intake to run, you know. But, you know, for the guys that are boosted, which lots and lots of people are, are boosted these days. Uh-huh. Um, and, and most all of them that are boosted have all discovered the more RPM I turn this thing, the less likely I am, I am to hurt the bottom end. Yeah. Right. From, from cylinder pressure. Yeah. And, and so they need intakes that turn RPM with boost, but they also have good distribution. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it's ironic. I just was, uh, I mean, GPI has a, uh, a chat or whatever on Facebook, a group on uh -huh. Facebook that I'm on. And, um, you know, we were just talking about uh, this cylinder, cylinder airflow distribution. And I posted a dynograph of a short runner intake that had about a one and a half uh, AFR spread from the leanest cylinder at the leanest point to the richest cylinder at the richest point. And people don't realize, I mean, well, even a stock LS3 intake. It has a 1.5 AFR spread. Yeah. Stock, right? People don't realize that, you know, what, what's really happening with air fuel ratio. And you have to have eight wideband O2 sensors, you know, one on each cylinder yeah. to see that stuff, you know. And quite frankly, most, most people with engine dynos, they just don't have the eight wideband O2 capability. Yeah, they'll just run one at a collector. Yeah, they got one each collector, and that's that's all they've got. Yeah, so so the other thing we did was testing uh, cross sectional areas, cross sectional area taper, right? I mean, you know, we would just take runners, we'd see and see them, and run them across the dyno. Right. Yeah. We and there's other aspects of the runner that we, you know, machined physically machined in the runner and and tested. And, and that's how we arrived at the runner length taper and cross-section that we have because the, because the runner length cross-section and taper that's in the Trinity is identical to the equalizer. Okay, I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people don't know that, but yeah, they're identical. Wow. Same runner. But the Trinity does make more power because, you know, the equalizer, the airflow, you know, flows in the bottom of the intake and then has to flow up you know, to the runners. Um, yeah. And, and while that's great for distribution, you know, it is somewhat 
restrictive for horsepower. Yeah. But, um, you know, an equalizer intake, like the cathedral port intake at 7,500 RPM, the AFR spread is 0.5. Dang, that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. If you saw all the stuff that, that we see, <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> there's nothing better. Yeah. Right. So let, let's say you have a 5.3 on boost and that equalizer cathedral, it, it's hard to beat and it's going to, it's going to help save an engine. Yeah. You know, because it's such even distribution and because it's a 5.3 engine, you know, it, it's, um, you know, it's not as restrictive as that intake would be on, you know, larger engine, even, even though that intake made, gosh, what, 21, 2200 horsepower on Kenny Dangler's 388, um, you know, which, which obviously a lot, that's a hydraulic roller. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so it's, it's not like it's, it's terrible, but, but the Trinity will make more power. Yeah, it just will. And with surprisingly good distribution. Yeah. Well, Brian, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I do appreciate you coming on, and uh, I, I do want to uh, inform our fans where they can get uh, some Brian Tooley products. Uh, I guess, of course, that would be BrianTooleyRacing.com, wouldn't it be? Yes, sir. That's it. All right, Brian. Well, I, was, if... uh, I had one more question. Yeah, go for it. Sure. Uh, I was just curious, are you all doing uh, cars and coffee again this year? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, okay. we are. Yeah, that was probably one of uh, my favorite. Of course, we're we're uh, out of Bowling Green, so it's a little bit of a drive, but it is well, well worth it. So if you're listening and you enjoy going to Cars and Coffees, be sure to uh, be watching out for Brian Tooley's because there is always some crazy, crazy cars and builds out there. Yep, lots of cool, lots of cool people hanging out for sure. Definitely. Well, with that being said, guys, we will catch you guys in the next one. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. If you did, hop on over to our social media as well as Brian Tooley's and follow him. Keep up with what he's doing. He's doing a lot of stuff in the LS market. You're not LS and LT market. You're not going to want to miss out. Also, like we said at the very end, Brian has the most killer cars and coffees around. You're not going to want to miss those. I'm telling you, if you've followed the show before, you've seen our brackets of the Brian Tooley cars and coffee, and it was bizarre. Like, by far the best cars and coffee we have around. And, uh, yeah, I, again, want to extend a huge, huge thanks to Brian Tooley for uh, coming on our podcast. A dream guest for me, so uh, can, can put that in the books. So, with that being said, guys, we'll catch you in the next one.